0: 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, if you have your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. The series is My New Normal. And this series, is, it's, it consists of seven messages. This, of course, is the second one. The rest of them will be all on Sunday morning. This is the only one that will include an interview in the video uh, of someone that you and I do not know. Uh, the rest of them will all include uh, interviews of people in our church. Bring a box of Kleenex, over, especially over the next two Sundays. Uh, these, these interviews are, they are moving. They are moving. And all of them consist of, of uh, stories, true stories of people who had some landmark event in their lives. Uh, sometimes it's a good event, sometimes it's a terrible, tragic event, but a landmark event that was so uh, pivotal that everything after that event is changed their lives after the event is totally different from life before the event. That's what this whole series is about. My new normal. Some of you, right now, are living in a my new normal. If I were to ask you, and I, I, haven't, I haven't done this, but if I were to ask you, uh, do you have a landmark event that's occurred in the last five years that has changed? your life in some way, maybe not totally changed it, but at least changed it in some way. Many of you would raise your hands that you've had one. Some of you would raise your hands that you've had a terrible event that's happened. Some of you would raise your hand that a wonderful event has happened. Uh, But you've had some landmark event that has changed your life. This morning we talked about financial stress and the economy. And we're kind of continuing that tonight, as you can see with with uh, Tim Callaway's video. He's a tile layer. He lays tile in bathroom and bathrooms. And up until two years ago, he had more work than he could possibly do. He could he could not hire enough people to help him get the work done. And he was making all kinds of money. And now uh, he has had to lay all of his workers off. And he is struggling, and he and his family are struggling. They turned off satellite TV. They uh, had to turn off their Internet, at least the DSL form of their Internet, back to dial-up and maybe turning it off. We're talking about Major League New Normal here. Think about your own life. What has been the landmark event that's occurred in your life that has changed you, everything in your life since then? Let me just take a little poll. How many of you in the past, I'm going to say five years, have had a landmark event that's changed your life, whether bad or an enormously good one? Would you raise your hand? Anybody? Anybody? Wow. What about that? What about that? Now, uh, let, me, let me go back 10 years. If you've had one in the last 10 years, of course, those of you who raised your hand will raise your hand again. If, go back 10 years. If you've had a landmark event in the last 10 years, raise your hand. Okay. Now, of those of you who've raised your hand, uh, how many of you raise your hand if that landmark event was a wonderful event, a good event, a positive event, raise your hand. All right. And raise your hand if that landmark event was a tragic, terrible event insofar as you're concerned. Raise your hand. What about that? This is where we are. It's also where the people in Scripture were. I mean, all you have to do, you go back to Adam and Eve. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Landmark event. It changed everything. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham minding his own business down there in Babylon, in what would be Babylon. In Ur of the Chaldees, and God says, "You got to get up and go to a place that I'll show you, Abraham." Well, where is it? Well, I'll show you. It turned out to be it was 800 miles to the west. Talking about a landmark event that changed his life. When Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter one, uh, he was on the verge. Most uh, many scholars believe he was on the verge of being executed, and he was writing to some people who were Jewish Christians who were scattered. Abroad, throughout the known world, and what scattered them was persecution. In fact, early in the life of the church, everybody wanted to be gathered in Jerusalem. All the Christians wanted to stay in Jerusalem, and it took God allowing persecution to scatter the disciples, the Christians, outside of Jerusalem so that they would obey the the Great Commission to go to the utmost parts of the earth. Sometimes it takes persecution to do great things. Look with me, though, to First Peter chapter one, beginning with verse three. Peter says to these people who are suffering and scattered, "Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish. "...spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine... your souls. For so many people uh, who were who were the first readers of any book of the New Testament, the landmark event that changed their lives was persecution. You've, you've heard me say it until you're tired of hearing me say it. Persecution, persecution. I, I was sitting uh, in camp meeting a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was alone in the, uh, my bedroom in the preacher's tent. And I was thinking about what I was going to preach that evening at the 8 o'clock service. And as I was thinking about what I was going to preach, I began to run through my mind the sermons that I have preached both here and at different places over the last several years. And I saw a, a running thread. Uh, and, and, and maybe it's a thread that I'm just seeing that, that m- maybe other people say, well, I don't really see that. But I saw a thread, and the thread was coping with crisis. I, I have become... A crisis kind of preacher, I think, and that is both, uh, I guess, good and bad. It it could make me uh, monotonous. I mean, it could be that you, you could leave here and say, "Well, you know, he's always preaching about crisis. Every sermon's about crisis. It seems," and so it could be monotonous. But on the other hand, as I look through Scripture and as I look and observe uh, people's lives, the people that I've come to know over the past. Uh, my, um, two or three decades in ministry, I, I, I realized that God will allow crisis in order to soften us to allow Him to work in our lives. Uh, I've noticed that, that people who resist receiving Christ as Savior are the most open to receiving Him when a crisis overwhelms them. I've noticed that we Christians are the most open to being fully obedient to Christ When we are in the midst of a crisis that has softened our hearts and softened our will. Now, I would rather that we'd be willing to do what God wants us to do without him having to put a crisis on us. And certainly, he's a God who's all-powerful. There's nothing he can't do. He can do anything he wants to. He could change us and make us obedient without a crisis. But it seems to me, and I think scripture bears this out, That more often than not, God will allow a major league crisis in your life if that's what it's going to take to get us to the point of really experiencing him and really breaking through in our relationship with God. Peter is writing to some Christians who are scattered abroad. They're suffering. They have been persecuted. They've run from persecution and persecution has caught up with them. The crisis will continue to pursue you. And so he's writing to them. Some scholars believe that this is uh, uh, that Peter is writing to a group of new Christians. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, uh, but I think second Peter is certainly to some new Christians. But first Peter, I'm not sure. Uh, one thing I do know is that if uh, Simon Peter indeed wrote this, he wrote it probably a- around 63 or 64 A.D. Now, this is very important. This is a very important date. If he wrote it around 63, 64 A.D., that's very important because he died sometime around 66 or 67 A.D. So he's right at the point. He's within two or three years of being uh, of dying. And how did he die? He was executed for his faith. And when they executed him, traditional history tells us that when he was, he was brought up, he was going to be crucified just like uh, the Lord Jesus was. And, and traditional history says that Peter, right before he was crucified, said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner that my Lord was. Crucify me upside down. And so if traditional history is correct, Simon Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus. This was the climate the Roman Empire was in control. The emperor of Rome was a fellow by the name of Nero. I've, as I've told you many times before, Nero was a lunatic. He was a lunatic. He would take Christians during the height of the persecution of the, of the 60s A.D. He'd wrap them up in flammable material. He would tie them to pedestals in his backyard and, and where he had a garden. And he would ignite them in order to, to illuminate his gardens at night. Can you imagine that? What kind of man this must have been. And these people are either being persecuted by his regime or they're being threatened with persecution. This is a crisis that has changed their lives. And so he writes to them about their Christian faith, about keeping the faith. And he says uh, says some things to them that I want to share with you. The first thing I want you to notice that he, he relates to them is that the Christian life is a life full of hope. It's a life of hope. Now, that's an amazing thing to tell people who are who are being threatened with their life, with, with the very uh, they're being threatened with death. They're, they think they're about to die. Peter is about to die. And yet they hear him saying, hey, the Christian life is a life full of hope. Verse three, he says, praise be to God. Now he's in the middle of persecution. And yet his words are not words of woe is me i'm about to die can't you can't you uh be sorry for me he said praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ because in his great mercy he has given us new birth into now listen to this you ready for this into a living hope a living hope Folks, I'll tell you the one thing that most people in this world would give every dime they ever had for if they could, and it's this, H-O-P-E. Everybody, everybody in every nation uh, under the heavens is, is desperate for hope. And Peter says to these people, the Christian life is a life of hope. Now, why is that? Why is the Christian life a life of hope? One very important reason, because of the promise of a great future that you and I have. Because of the promise of a great future. Listen, there may be times when when we experience heartaches here and trials and, and struggles in our lives, and we will. But no matter what we experience, the Christian life is one that has the promise of a great hope. But not only that, we have the promise of God's presence with us here and now. If you've been saved... If there was a time in your life when you invited Christ into your life, that very moment when you said yes to Jesus, the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit came down and entered your life, entered your heart, and he is there to stay everywhere you go. Jesus is with you everywhere you might go, every struggle you'll experience, every success you'll enjoy. Jesus, through His Spirit, is there to enjoy it with you. So, our Christian walk is a walk of hope because we have a great future and because we have a great uh, presence of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life, Peter says, is a life of hope. But, second, he says, the Christian life is a life of trials. It is a life of trials. Beginning with verse six, he says this, he says, in this faith, you have this faith that gives you so much hope, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I love that phrase, though, now for a little while, you know what that, that phrase for a little while means. It means it ain't going to be for a long while. It means that it's not going to be forever. It's not going to be everlasting. There may be times when I, I'm, I find myself in a situation where I'm crying out with God and saying, God, I'm not going to make it. I can't make it through this situation. But whatever that situation is, no matter how, uh, uh, how everlasting it seems to be, it is only for a little while. Though for a little while, Peter says, you are suffering grief in all kinds of of trials. Now, I, I want you to get this. This is not going to be on the slide, so I want you to get this. The Christian life is a life of hope for three reasons. One, to the first two I've already told you. One, because of the promise of a great future. Number two, because of the of the never ending, never leaving you presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, here's a third reason, very important. Because the Christian life has hope because our distresses have design to them. There is a design to your distress. What I mean by that is that God will not allow a struggle, a hardship in your life that has no purpose in it. It always has a purpose built into the distress. And you and I may not always see it. In fact, most of the time we don't. But just just Go ahead and believe it now, okay? Will you do that? Just go ahead and believe it now. Raise your hand if you'll just go ahead and believe it now. Come on now. Raise your hand if you'll just go ahead and believe it now. Just raise your hand and say, I'm going to believe that whatever struggle I'll face tomorrow has a purpose in it. It has a God-given, God-built, God-designed purpose in it. And I'm just going to believe it now. Even though whenever I face it, I may not see it, I may not understand it, I'm just going to, by faith, believe it now. I'm going to believe that my distress has a divine design to it. So the Christian life is a life of hope. The Christian life is a life of trials. And then the third thing that that I think Peter tells us, and this is also throughout the Scriptures, is that trials in the Christian life are always connected to your faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is a relationship you have with Jesus Christ. That's faith. We receive Christ not because of of material evidence that he is who he says he is, but by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by our belief without evidence or without all the evidence instead of believing because of all the evidence. That's faith. And this faith that you and I have will be tried. It'll be tried By trials. Trials are hardships that occur in our lives. Now, whenever you have a crisis, let's say that uh, you're a student and you're in school, and there are some classes, if you're like I was, there are some classes you're very good at and some you're not very good at. I was terrible in math, I struggled in math. I would pray for God to help me in math. God didn't listen to my prayers about helping me when I was in math. I don't know what it was about that. And so what if you're a student and all of a sudden you get a D? You get, you get A's and B's in every other class except for math, and there you get a D in math. And for you, it's a crisis. For you, it's a crisis. And you've got a report card, a report slip, or however they do it these days, or they send it through email, and they send it to your parents. I mean, it is judgment day at 3.30, 4 o'clock, you know. You get home, mom and dad have already seen this, already seen this thing. There's no way to get online and kind of change the D into a B like we used to whenever I was in school because D's can easily be changed to B's. Hello? Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe that's your crisis. Maybe your crisis is... Is a sickness, Chris Beatty, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis. That's what it is. I can't get those two separated. How long have you had that diagnosis, Chris? Since 2002. It's like a new normal, is it not? It is. You'll see some people in interviews later in this series who've been diagnosed recently with diseases, and now they're living with something that's totally different for them. Your new normal may be the breakup of a family. Your new normal may be the beginning of a new relationship. Andy and Amy here. Your new normal may be you made the praise band or you didn't make the praise band. Your new normal may be you decided to jump in the pool at the shallow end. Your new normal may be you're on the phone with mom or dad, and they didn't recognize your voice for the very first time. Your new normal may be you lost dad. Listen, whatever your crisis is, get this. Your crisis is connected to your faith in four very important ways. They're on the slide. Watch this. First of all, your crisis can reveal the true quality of your faith. It can reveal the true quality of your faith. I can tell you that I'm a strong Christian, but my trials will show whether or not I am. Your crisis is connected to your faith. Your crisis can purify your faith. It's kind of like... It's kind of like a fire that burns off everything that's worthless and leaves and purifies and cleans everything that is of value. It can purify your faith. Trials can strengthen your faith. Steel, I'm told, before it can be sent and and incorporated into a building and building construction, that steel has to go through, through intense heat to strengthen it, make it strong. I'm told that if the steel is not put through that intense heat for a certain period of time, it will be brittle and will come apart and break easily. And so, in the same way, trials strengthen our faith. And then also, trials can spark revival in us. Those of you who've been here in the Palmetto area, South Fulton, North Coweta, Fayette County, you... you, Are well well aware of the story of New Hope Baptist Church in Fayetteville. Back in the seventies, Richard Lee was there. Richard Lee is now the pastor up at First Redeemer Church in Forsyth County. Um, Church of about twenty five hundred people. They had Tim Tebow there last week or week before last. uh, Interviewed him. Richard Lee interviewed him. Richard Lee is a very successful pastor. He went there from Rehoboth Baptist Church in Tucker, where he was baptizing 600 people a year. But before he was at Rehoboth, he was in full time evangelism for a while. But before he was in full time evangelism, he was the pastor of a little white frame church over here on New Hope Road. The white frame building is still there. They were small in the 70s. And they started, he started training people to win other people to Christ. And then Richard Lee decided to bring on a summer intern, a summer youth intern. Not full-time, it was just a summer youth intern with the possibility of going full-time. And this guy's name was Dwight Reichard. They called him Ike Reichard. Ike came, his wife Cindy. We have people in our church now who grew up in the youth group at New Hope under Ike rickard richard lee when he felt led led to leave uh, new hope and go into full-time evangelism they started looking for a pastor and so they turned to ike and they said we know you're new in the ministry and and we're going to let you fill in on an interim basis while we go looking for a preacher and he says well okay and so he fills in. Well, after after a month or two i don't know exactly how long a time it was but it wasn't very long they found they came up to him they said look Why are we looking for a preacher when we have you? And so they called him to be the pastor at New Hope Baptist Church. They ran about 200, maybe 250. Not as many as we run right here at Palmetto on an average Sunday morning. Now, Richard Lee had gotten these people trained to reach people, to witness, to share their faith. And so the church was growing and Fayette County was growing. Uh, Not as fast as the counties on the north side of town, but but they were growing, and so the church was growing, but still running around 2, 250. And then Cindy, Ike's wife, in late 1982, discovered that she was pregnant, expecting a child, their first child. Everything went great. The whole nine months of pregnancy went great. They got to the end of February. They set a date. The doctor said, if you haven't delivered the baby by by uh, March the first or second, we're going to bring you in. We'll induce labor. Okay, everything's fine. The plan was to go up to Piedmont Hospital, downtown Atlanta. I mean, folks, uh, if you want to go to the hospital, there are a few hospitals that you want to go to. Piedmont is normally one of them. I mean, it really is. You got Piedmont and Emory and Crawford Long. Really good hospitals. March the 1st, 1983. Ike gets a call. It's from Cindy's mother. Ike, Cindy has started having contractions and labor pains. She's on the way to the hospital. Okay, I'll meet you there. She told me, Cindy told me, Ike says, to run by the fast food and get her two sausage biscuits, one for her and one for the baby. And he says, I, I'm picking those up right now and I'm on my way to Piedmont Hospital. And he got up to Piedmont. The parents were there. His parents were there. Her parents were there. He went into the labor room. Because by that time already husbands were allowed to go in the labor and and delivery room. And he was in there with her and everything was great. And periodically he'd leave the labor and delivery and go and and give reports out in the waiting room. March the 1st, 1983. He tells Cindy, he says, I'll be right back, baby. I'm going to go give a report to our parents out in the waiting room. He leaves labor and delivery, goes into the waiting room. As he's walking into the room, a code 100 goes on over the hospital. Code 100, labor and delivery. Code 100, labor and delivery. They didn't mention Cindy's name, they didn't mention Cindy's room, but Ike said he got a feeling in his gut that something was bad, wrong. He immediately made an about face, went back to the labor and delivery room. He walked in and there were six specialists surrounding Cindy's bed. She had gone into unexpected cardiac arrest. One of the doctors turned around and said, Ike, Something bad has gone wrong and you're going to have to decide between your wife or your child. And Ike immediately said, save my wife. Save my wife. And they lost both of them. The doctors wrestled with Cindy for a Hours And finally they turned and they said, Ike, we've done all we can do. It. he said, he said, unhook everything and get away from her. Do you want us to go ahead and take the baby? No, we need to bury the baby with her. Inside her. And so Cindy Riker is buried over here across the road from New Hope Church in a little cemetery New Hope Cemetery, Cindy Reichard and baby Reichard, right there in the same grave. Ike Reichard said he turned around and he, after being at the hospital again hours after she died, he went back home, walked into the house, and there's this empty house. And he said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I I I, I hadn't lived without her for, for so long and we had such dreams. He said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I cried out to God, I said, God, I can't handle this. People began to call and he didn't want to answer the phone. He just, he didn't know what to do. But that church hovered around him, gathered around him. In the middle of that tragedy, they gathered around him. That was in 1983, ladies and gentlemen, by 1990, seven years later. In a revival that was, to a great extent, sparked by that tragedy, they went from running 250, 300 to 4,000. Now, would I wish that tragedy on anybody? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I'm simply saying God used that tragedy to wake up a church. And they went from being an average church to a great church because of a revival that began with a crisis. God can use a crisis to spark a revival in you. And if that's what He has to do, He will. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this time of invitation. I pray that during this time, if there's someone who's lost, who's never received you as Savior, and Lord, that they would come forward and invite you into their heart to be Savior. I pray for those of us who are saved. Lord, that if we need a wake-up call, that you would give us that wake-up call right now, that we would be committed to you, Lord. Lord, I pray for a change in hearts, even now, in this place. I pray that we'd be willing to move in your direction without a crisis. But Lord, I pray that you'd wake us up. For I fear, Lord, that we are slumbering. I fear that I'm slumbering. God, help us to rise up see your face in Jesus name